This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Matthew Delmont is the Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professor of History at Dartmouth College. He's the author of four previous books, Black Quotidian, Why Bussing Failed, Making Roots, and The Nicest Kids in Town. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and many academic journals. But I'm lucky enough today to get to speak with him about his latest work of history, Half American. Half American pulls back the scar that has covered over one of the great black eyes in the history of America's participation in World War II. It is on the one hand an extraordinary story of how Black Americans served and fought in the major battles leading up to and constituting the world war against fascism across the globe. And on the other, it is a revelation of the cruelty, inequity, brutality, and spite with which those men and women were met when they returned home to a country that did not and would not value their service. Matt Delmont details the many forms that Black service took including an early attention to the fascist movements in Europe that helped topple a democratic government in Spain. Along the way, we learn about Thurgood Marshall's endless work to lead the NAACP in investigating violence against veterans, Langston Hughes's reportage from the front lines of the Spanish Civil War, the exquisite bravery of the Tuskegee Airmen, who sacrificed not only to guide bombers into battle, but to open up the Air Force to black pilots, something that was seen as impossible before their victories. But at the core of Half American are stories that Matt tells of everyday black men and women who volunteered to fight for their country, for the freedom of others, while their own freedom and even their very lives were at stake at home. 
Somehow, in the worst of the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow America, Black Americans were volunteering to give their lives for the war efforts abroad. They were instrumental to key battles and decisive victories that pushed back against fascism. And yet, as is so often the case, their stories and the tales of the brutalism they faced from their own countrymen have been absent from canonical history about World War II. Matt Delmont's half-American seeks to set that history straight. As Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Clint Smith puts it, half-American belongs firmly within the canon of indispensable World War II books. It is a great privilege to welcome my friend Matt Delmont to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. I am just so excited about this book. I can't wait to uh, recommend it very widely. You tell such extraordinary stories in Half American, and so many of them are a painful combination of the bravery of Black Americans choosing to fight for the U.S., but also for freedom more generally, with that bravery always positioned as a two-front fight in which men and women were having to return from wars abroad to find themselves embattled with the citizens and the government of their own nation. Why was this a story you wanted to tell, and why do you think it has taken so long to find the focus of historical studies of World War II? So for me as a historian, I've taught about this time period for, for more than a decade. Um, the double victory campaign, which was a rallying cry for Black Americans during the war, to secure victory over fascism abroad and victory over racism at home. It's something I've lectured about and it's been part of my, my college classes for, for many years now. But it was, it's about seven years ago, I was working on my last book, which was about um, African-American newspapers. And I was looking through, um, just on a kind of page by page basis, some of the papers from the World War II era. And I kept coming across these profiles and snapshots of black men and women who had been drafted or volunteered for military service in the army, Navy or Marines. And they were just little, small photos and sometimes little brief blurbs of these just ordinary folks from Cleveland, Chicago, Pittsburgh. And first I saw a dozen of these and then eventually hundreds of them. Um, and after seeing all those, it, it made me kind of stop and think, what does World War II actually look like from the Black perspective? Because these kind of daily stories were a depth of perspective I'd never never fully encountered before. Um, I obviously was familiar with the Tuskegee Airmen, familiar with Doris Miller and his heroism at Pearl Harbor and familiar with the double victory campaign, but to kind of taking a step back and thinking like, what did the entirety of the war look like for black Americans? That's what made me so excited about trying to research this book. And once I actually got into the stories and got into the archival documents and the oral histories and more deeply into the black press, I realized just how much of the story that there was there. Um, and it really forced me to reconsider the double victory campaign that when you actually stop and think about it, it was a profound, profound challenge to the United States about what the country could be, that Black Americans were deeply involved in the military effort. They, they truly understood the threat that fascism posed, and so they, they very much wanted to defeat fascism abroad. But at the same time, equally important, or perhaps even more important, was ending racism at home. And I think when you take that double victory campaign seriously, it becomes really clear that the United States didn't fully win World War II if you, meet, if you understand that home front uh, part of the battle to be equally important. And so it was just a tremendous journey for me to, to do this research and to try to pull together the different pieces of the story and to really try to do justice to what um, Black Americans experienced and, and, and did during the time period. There's clearly a tremendous amount of original research into primary and secondary sources embedded in this book. Can you talk about your research process and whether it was difficult to find the kinds of sources you needed to tell uh, the stories of everyday Black Americans? 
Yeah, I, mean, I think you know as well as anyone how messy history is. Like, there's there's so much there, particularly for a topic like World War II. And so my big challenge is trying to get my hands on as many things as I could, and then try to put together the puzzle pieces. So for me, there are really kind of three big areas of, of research that I delved into. One were the black newspapers, uh, particularly the war correspondents who followed um, black units throughout the throughout the world. They were in the European theater, in the Pacific theater, and in, in uh, China, India, and Burma. Those reports were so important because they captured at a very detailed level the really vital work black troops did, that by and large, black troops were not in combat roles, that there were a number of units that performed bravely in combat, but the real lion's share of work that black troops did were in the logistic and supply work. Um, and that's what these war correspondents captured, and they wrote profoundly about the importance of this work and made it come alive to, to readers at home. And so trying to um, get a sense of how... Black Americans experienced the war through the pages of black newspapers was important to me. And so I looked at uh, hundreds of or tens of thousands of articles from the black press. Um, archival documents were obviously important here as well, um, both military documents to get a sense of how the military understood the work of these units, but also many of the archived letters that black troops wrote to the NAACP talking about their experiences at these army bases in the South. And then the third big um, piece of research or, or um, type of evidence I relied on were oral history interviews. Um, primarily ones conducted by the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Um, these were interviews taken when the veterans were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and they talked in just very deeply personal ways about their lives before the war, in Jim Crow America, what they experienced um, in service, whether it was the Army, Navy, or Marines, and then what America was like when they came back. Uh, and being able to access dozens of these interviews gave me um, just tremendous insights into the, the personal stories of the war. And so then as a historian, trying to put those pieces together and weave them together into a narrative so that I could make sense of, hopefully at a large scale, what Black Americans experienced in the war, and war, war era and hopefully do justice to the more than a million Black Americans who served, while also trying to foreground some specific characters so that readers are able to um, get a sense of the, the very individual tenor of, um, of the war experience. Well, I think you did that beautifully. And it's it's both a sort of gripping narrative, but it does, as to use your word, it gets at the tenor of those individual lives, I think, in a beautiful way. Um, and I think there will be a lot of people who will be quite grateful that you that you gave it your attention. You begin by telling the story of how Black Americans were paying careful attention to the fight against fascism in Spain during their civil war. And they were choosing to go abroad and fight for the Republicans against Franco's junta. Right at the center of that involvement was Langston Hughes, who arrived in Spain as a reporter for a Black-run magazine. Would you lay out Hughes's role and maybe address how you even came to learn about the involvement of the Black community in anti-fascist struggles? So my, my first introduction to this was work by uh, Robin D.G. Kelly, the, the famed historian um, who's just done such tremendous work. He had a, a short article where he talked about um, how Black Americans responded to the Italian invasion of Ethiopia and then how Black Americans volunteered for the Abraham Lincoln Brigade in Spain. I probably read that uh, chapter maybe a decade ago, but it always stuck with me. Um, and as I was thinking about this project, part of what I wanted to be able to demonstrate was that for Black Americans, World War II truly started before Pearl Harbor, before America officially became involved militarily. Because when you look back at a black newspaper from the 1930s, if you looked at 1933, 34, 35, you would see extensive coverage of what was happening in Europe. 
Um, Black Americans were among the first to recognize the really dire threat that Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany posed to the world. Uh, they drew explicit connections between the kind of racial policies that Hitler was implementing in Germany against uh, Jews and what Black Americans were experiencing in the Jim Crow South. Fast forward a couple of years, when Italy invades Ethiopia in 1935, um, that already produces headlines that say this is the start of the Second World War, because African Americans are deeply concerned that uh, Italy, this fascination under Benito Mussolini, has invaded the lone um, independent nation in Africa, and largely the rest of the world does nothing to, to stop it. Um, there's very little intervention by the United States or any other uh, democratic nation. And then in 1936, with the Spanish Civil War, um, that truly captures the imaginations of, of Black Americans. And again, they're, they're among the first to recognize that fascism isn't going to be just a problem in Europe, but this is going to be a problem that is necessarily going to involve the United States as well. Langston Hughes, as you mentioned, goes over to Spain as a war correspondent for the Baltimore African-American. And he's just fascinated by these 80 plus Black Americans who volunteer as part of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade to fight alongside the Republican forces in, in Spain. And what he, he captures there, why it's so important and fascinating for Black readers at home, is because the work that those Black volunteers are doing in the Spanish Civil War, they're taking on roles that would be denied to them in the U.S. military at home. They're fighting in combat roles that would be denied to them typically, and they're fighting in integrated units um, alongside people from Ireland and Mexico and um, other parts of Europe and uh, white Americans as well. Those integrated units did not exist in the U.S. military. The entire military was, was segregated. Hmm. And so with these dispatches, Hughes is showing a couple of things. He's showing that Black Americans were among the first to take up arms to fight against fascism, but he's also showing that in, in practice, Black Americans can perform bravely in combat and integration can actually succeed militarily. So it's, it's creating a vision for what's possible that is not yet being realized within the U.S. military. Yeah, I thought this this chapter was just amazing, and I was I was quite blindsided by it, which I think is 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 really part of the magic of this book is that this was in no way a part of my education on either World War II or I've I've done some some of my own reading because of my interest in Spain into the Spanish Civil War, and from you know Spanish historians, this maybe is a minor minor blip, a sentence or two often, and so it was really, uh, it had real force in that way. Um, for me, also, the story of the opening of the Air Force to Black pilots is an amazing one. You detail how the Tuskegee Airmen and Benjamin O. Davis Jr., as their leader, were able to break that color barrier despite having zero backing and confidence from the military or politicians. They broke it essentially with sheer talent, skill, and gumption. While they were providing cover for bombers and other major assets, they were being undermined from within. Would you talk a little bit about how the enemies they faced inside their own military were a major hurdle they had to overcome and some of the tactics that were employed against them? So the Tuskegee Airmen are probably the most well-known Black figures from World War II. Um, I think thanks to some recent films and books, most Americans hopefully know their story. But it's easy to think that they somehow their breaking down those barriers was straightforward or that it was um, a linear linear path by which they, they succeeded. What I tried to detail in the book was that this was a week by week and month by month battle. Um, the character I foreground is Benjamin O. Davis Jr., who graduated from West Point in 1936. Um, at the time, he was only the fourth black man to graduate from West Point. And he was actually the first in the 20th century. 
when he graduates from West Point in 1936, the Army really has no idea what to do with him. Um, he wants to be a pilot, but at that point, the Army Air Corps is not allowing any Black Americans to be pilots. And so they send him to teach military science at a Black school in the South. It's only due to organized efforts by civil rights activists and Black newspapers that Tuskegee, the ex experiment for Black pilots, is created in spring of 1941. Uh, and Benjamin O. Davis is one of his first cohort of Black pilots to train there. As you noted, once the pilots start training, they're both trying to learn how to fly, preparing for combat, but also trying to navigate uh, racism from their own commanders and then from townspeople in the, the area surrounding Tuskegee. Um, the air base at Tuskegee had not only black pilots there, but there were black women who were nurses, there were ground personnel, there were meteorologists, and all of them described a sense of camaraderie among the black personnel, but a sense of being besieged by uh, racism in the surrounding community. Uh, there was one black nurse named Norma Green uh, who was beaten by police when she went to shopping and um, refused to move to a different section of the bus when they when they asked her to. That almost prompted a, a race riot among the, the pilots at Tuskegee. But once the pilots deploy to the Mediterranean in 1943, um, they had their first chance to face off against Nazi planes and they're accompanying bombers and doing a tremendous job of um, implementing the training that they've received over the past two years. But even still, they still have to navigate the the racism of their, their white commanders. Um, their white commanders would play petty tricks on them. They would schedule meetings at a certain time and then move up the time an hour so that the black pilots would arrive late. And then most uh, damningly in their after action reports, they said that the black pilots weren't uh, courageous and, um, and brave enough in combat that they didn't have the the skill to to be successful fighter pilots that was deeply deeply hurtful to them because they'd been training for two years they had lost members of their squadron who had, who had died in training and so to have their own commanders undermine them and criticize them like that and then to have those criticisms be repeated in major newspapers and magazines like time was deeply hurtful um, they felt rightly that they were not only fighting nazi planes, Nazi soldiers, but they're also fighting their own military bosses and personnel and their own countrymen to prove their worth in the in the military. And so what I what I try to trace in the book is that is that arc. The fact that what's so important about the Tuskegee Airmen story is that they recognized how much was on their shoulders, that if they failed, mm -hmm. it could have been multiple generations before black Americans had a chance to be fighter pilots again. It was just so angering to read about that combination of dirty tricks and violence uh, projected both small and large from the townspeople while you have a group of men and women working to sacrifice and sacrifice for the country that's giving them them nothing. I, I have a, a feeling it, it must have been really angering to read it while you were doing the research. How how did you sort of separate for yourself your your anger at this from the need to tell the story? You're right. Going back into some of these sources from World War II, it's it's very upsetting as a historian, and I tried to to channel that anger. I think into to researching more deeply into I think writing more more honestly. Um, I think we, we owe it to ourselves uh, as American citizens today to, to talk really frankly about what the country was like in that time period. It's easy for some Americans, think particularly white Americans, to think that World War II was somehow uh, a peaceful, more simple, um, more unified time in our, our country's history. It, it was anything but. Um, in 1943 alone, there were more than 240 race riots and racial clashes all across the country, including on army bases. And it was not at all clear um, that Americans shared the same commitments about what the war was about. Uh, for Black Americans, they absolutely wanted 
actual freedom and democracy to exist at home. For too many white Americans, what public polling showed and what the um, the recollections of white veterans said was that they wanted America to be like it was before the start of the war. That's the exact opposite of what black Americans they wanted. They, they didn't want to return to a country that treated them as half American. One of the quotes that really stuck with me from the book was uh, from Roy Wilkins, one of the NAACP leaders, who said that white Americans would rather lose the war than give up the luxury of racial prejudice. Hmm. And it's hard to find the lie in that because even just thinking about military segregation, uh, it made no sense. It's one of those things that's maddening as a historian is that you recognize that they were turning away black volunteers and draftees who had language skills, who had technical skills, who could have helped win the war, but they're putting them in roles as, as cooks or as messmen um, or as truck drivers uh, that did not take full advantage of their, their capabilities. The kind of segregation that the military implemented was tremendously logistically complicated to, to maintain. They had to do everything in duplicate. It was a huge waste of people's time and resources to, to create all these separate training facilities um, and to, to manage everything separately. Um, for the Red Cross going down to even segregating blood donors, even though there's no scientific basis to separate so-called white blood from black blood. Reading some of those kind of details, it really does I think, speak to what Wilkins is saying, is that if a lot of white Americans have to choose between losing the war and ending racial hierarchies, they might have been more comfortable losing the war than actually stopping racial hierarchies in the United States. That's a, a troubling lesson to take away from this history because it's not usually how we think about World War II. But when you actually get into the the, the documents and the evidence and see uh, the kind of steps that were taken to maintain a racial system whose only purpose was to appease white racial prejudice, um, it's really it's really hard to it's hard to read sometimes. Yeah, that is that's painful. The image I get is just you know the United States military just poking itself in the eye as hard as it can to try and add difficulty to something where they could have easily taken advantage of all this interest in volunteerism. But as you say, the the ideology undergirding it all had to involve this, uh, this deep racism and desire to keep inequities the same. As you were talking about the unnecessary and, and ridiculous segregation, I was thinking of uh, Sergeant Edward A. Carter Jr., who you talk about, um, who had been living abroad with missionary parents and saw the effects of, of fascism really, really firsthand. And even though he could speak all these languages and had military uh, experience, abroad he was he was so you know placed on the sidelines and and his abilities as a linguist and otherwise were just discounted do you want to talk a little bit about edward a carter jr yeah uh, carter is one of the, the most fascinating figures from the book um so he volunteers to fight in the spanish civil war um and performs bravely in combat there he joins the U.S. Army three months before Pearl Harbor, um, but despite the fact that he has this combat experience and despite the fact that, as you noted, he's lived abroad and so he's actually fluent in Hindi, Mandarin, and German, the Army decides the best place to put him is as a cook in a quartermaster truck company. And so I think just pausing there and thinking about the lack of logic behind that, that here's yeah, someone who, <laughs> who, unlike the vast majority of, of white draftees, <laughs> he has actual combat experience. Like He's actually been at war. Um, and beyond that, he has got this tremendous 
uh, set of, of language capabilities. He could do it's almost so anything. It's so stupid. He could do it's almost so anything. Unbelievably stupid. Um, and they look at this guy and think, "All right, you're going to be a cook." Um, so that's <laughs> that's what he does for the first uh, really four years of the war. It's not until 1944, when American allies are really desperate for more infantrymen, that the U.S. Army finally issues a call for volunteers for combat duty, and that's the first time uh, Black Americans are really given a chance to step forward into combat. Carter is one of the 5,000 who volunteers for that, even though it means he's going to have to step back in terms of rank. He's willing to give up some of his rank in order to get this uh, chance to be in a, a combat role that, that takes better advantage of his um, his skills. In March 1945, uh, he leads a detachment uh, across an open field in Germany, in this, this battle in Germany. Uh, he's wounded several times, but when Nazi riflemen try to capture him, he kills six of them and then captures the remaining two. Um, reading about the after-action report, it's it's almost unbelievable. It's almost the kind of superhero Rambo-esque mm -hmm. things that you see in movies, but it's Here's true. your real Captain America. Yeah, he, right. he actually does it, right? And if you look him up online, about the most handsome man you can imagine. <laughs> uh, he's just a, an amazing, amazing figure. He eventually is awarded the Medal of Honor in, 19, in 1997. Um, there are no black troops who awarded the Medal of Honor during World War II. Um, so Carter is awarded a medal at the time, but it's not until 1997 when the military reviews a number of these uh, citations and recognizes that it's largely been racial discrimination that prevented the accomplishments of Black Americans being recognized. So it takes several decades for the Army to recognize the fact, but Carter was among the most heroic uh, soldiers to fight in World War II. Yeah, that I, I was so gripped by his valor and also by his decision not to just look at the situation they had put him in, you know, sidelining him as a cook and just say, forget it. I'm not interested. This isn't my struggle anymore. But as you say, it's a two-front struggle and there were other interests in in dispatching fascism and finding real democracy at home. You, you tell an anecdote about Jackie Robinson that was entirely unfamiliar to me. It's part of your chapter called Mutiny, which discusses the ways in which individual black soldiers and sailors staged their own protests against Jim Crow laws and unwritten and unspoken laws of racial oppression. Could you tell that story and talk about why it's important to this story of individualized struggle? Sure. So Jackie Robinson was stationed at Camp Hood, Texas. Uh, he was a lieutenant and he was attached to a tank battalion, a group called the 761st Tank Battalion, uh, nicknamed the Black Panthers, that go on to uh, perform tremendously in, in combat in Europe. They're, uh, they are a battle for more than 130 days in four major Allied campaigns. But Jackie Robinson, while he's at, at Camp Hood, uh, he's on a bus. And buses are one of the major sources of conflict throughout the war. And so this is kind of a, um, a foreshadowing what emerges with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1950, that a lot of these same stories about Black troops being asked to move to the back of the bus and being demanded they move to the back of the bus while wearing their military uniforms. And you can understand the frustration and anger that Jackie Robinson and others felt. Um, in this incident at Camp Hood, he's sitting next to a, a white-skinned Black woman who's the wife of a, another um, Black lieutenant. The white bus driver uh, assumes that Jackie Robinson is sitting next to a white woman. And so when the bus driver tells Robinson to move back, um, he says no, that he's not going to do it. This incident emerges. Um, Robinson is uh, thrown off of the bus and eventually he's court-martialed for uh, uh, the the ruckus that ensues from uh, from this incident, 
at that time, Robinson's already a pretty well-known figure within Black America and even among a large number of white Americans because of his athletic prowess at UCLA. He's a four-sport star. And so Robinson understands that his court martial has the potential to blow up into a pretty pretty big deal. And so through some behind-the-scenes negotiation, um, they're able to get the charges dropped. He's able to be uh, honorably discharged and um, and removed from, from the military. But one of those kind of counterfactuals is that there were a number of black soldiers who were murdered in incidents very much like the one Robinson found himself in, where they were mm-hmm. told to move the back of the bus and they didn't. Uh, and then either they were beaten or shot by uh, bus drivers because the bus drivers were essentially deputized to act as though they were sheriffs in these small southern towns. And so there's a whole parallel history where Robinson might very well not have survived that incident at Campo, Texas, um, and we wouldn't then know him as the the pioneering baseball figure and um, civil rights figure that we do. Yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing, amazing story, and one that deserves equal equal play with his with his stardom as a baseball player. You dramatized the story of W.E.B. Du Bois's infamous letter to the U.N. lambasting the U.S. and its allies for fighting for democracy abroad, but denying it to its black citizens at home. As you write it, this changed the course of the NAACP for decades. What changed in that moment? And do you think Du Bois's letter speaks in a new way to our current national discontent? So this period after the end of World War II is really an interesting one, um, because both for Black veterans and for civil rights activists, the fight continues, and if anything, it intensifies in the years after 1945. So the NAACP is really at the front lines of trying to fight this battle for for equal rights, both in terms of voting rights, in terms of um, school desegregation, um, really fighting for true equality for for Black Americans. W.E. Du Bois obviously has an on-again, off-again relationship with the NAACP, and partly in part because he has a very, very different outlook and set of political commitments than Walter White, who's the secretary of the NAACP does. But they're able to come together for a period of time uh, at the end of World War II because they're, they're both concerned about how the United States is taking part in these uh, international conversations that are going to reshape the post-war world. They're particularly concerned about how Black Americans and other people of color in the so-called third world are being left out of these conversations, how it's almost all skewing to the United States and, and white European countries. Du Bois uh, is the leader penning this uh, important report that NWCP publishes called An Appeal to the World, which is a 150-page treatise on human rights, abuses against Black Americans, because he wants to force this question of human rights in the U.S. onto the international agenda. Um, He's arguing, and others, um, fellow activists are arguing, that human rights abuses aren't just happening internationally. They're not just happening. It didn't just happen in Nazi Germany. They're happening and continue to happen in the U.S. That ends up splitting the NWCP back again because his approach, his um, his arguments are are too radical for, for Walter White and for uh, some of the NWCP board members, such as Eleanor Roosevelt, who has a, a leadership position with the, with the UN at that time. It shapes what comes later for the organization because at the national level, Walter White really guides the NWCP on a a more moderate path where they really focus on domestic concerns such as school desegregation. Obviously, the local branches of the NWCP all over the country um, are taking different approaches, and so there's a lot more radicalism at the local level. But nationally, under White's leadership, um, NWCP takes a more moderate approach. Du Bois uh, pivots and reaches out to uh, an international array of radical activists to continue to press this case. I think the thing that was striking for me in looking back at this is when you look at the appeal to the world 
it lists in page after page after page the specific instances of lynchings and violence against Black Americans that took that took place during the war and then the years right after the war. I couldn't help but think when I read that about the say their name campaigns um, of mm. the Black Lives Matter era mm-hmm. because the the way of trying to call attention to these specific instances of violence against Black Americans and how taken collectively they spoke to the the real um, human rights abuses that Black Americans were were experiencing. Both the violence and the tactic of trying to demand justice for for those acts of violence um, were so closely paralleled between the World War II era. Uh, in the post-war era and what we've just seen uh, most recently with um, uh, with Black Lives Matter is one of those times as a historian where you, the echoes are just so strong that it's hard it's hard not to feel like history is repeating itself um, mm-hmm. and it really inc- forces again the, the idea that history obviously doesn't move in a straight line and we don't just move from it's not a steady line of progress but that part of the urgency of, of today's racial justice movements is is the very fact that these things have been going on for decades and decades. Have you read Du Bois's problematic, giant, bizarre novel, Dark Princess, by any chance? You know, I haven't. I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. I just, I, I think you would find it fascinating because in many ways it is his dramatization and 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 sort of fantasy of how a different response to fascism abroad, a global, um, not only black, but multiracial, um, mostly people of color response to seek freedom and democracy might have worked out differently. I mean, it's not a good novel. <laughs> it has a lot of problems. It's really boggy to read, but the germ of it I think reflects so much of this of the stories that you're telling about him in this book, and I think I think you'd quite like it. I'll check it out. Thanks for reminding me about it. There's so many stories in Half American of everyday Black people making sacrifices for a country that at best ignored their heroism and at worst punished it. What was the story that you uncovered that was most meaningful to you? I think one of the ones that was most powerful for me was a name that's going to be familiar to a lot of people, which was Medgar Evers. Um, Medgar Evers obviously becomes an iconic civil rights figure who's tragically assassinated in 1963. But the reason I would cite him is his service in World War II, he was only 19 years old. So at that point, he is just a, an everyday Black American from Mississippi. He's part of the group of Red Ball Express truck drivers. He's loading and unloading these trucks after the uh, invasion of Normandy that are really crucial to moving supplies throughout Europe. And he has an experience of meeting a white family in in France. And when he describes it later, he says it was the first time he ever felt like he was treated uh, as an equal or as fully human by a white person. That really changes his perspective on what's possible. And so when he goes home um, back to Mississippi, he immediately dedicates his life to fighting for civil rights. Uh, When he's 21 on his 21st birthday, he leads a group of black veterans uh, to um, try to register to vote in Decatur, Mississippi only to be turned away by a white mob with guns. And then as he takes on increasingly important uh, roles in the NAACP throughout the 1950s, including investigating the murder of um, Emmett Till, it's really his um, his service that helps to, to motivate and drive his, his passion for civil rights. And so I think he's really one of the first names that comes to mind because that whole generation of Black veterans um, they're drafted or volunteered to serve. They give everything they can to the war effort. And then they give even more to trying to make America uh, a more just place once they come home. Thank you for that story and for so many of the stories in this book. Uh, before I let you go, 
Is there a place you can send our listeners to read more about some of these extraordinary individuals that you detail in Half American? Or are there histories that you recommend as possible companions to the book? That's a great question. So I've been trying to post um, as much as I can on Twitter. Um, there have been a number of Twitter threads where I've tried to highlight a number of these different uh, black veterans who are part of the book with links to be able to read more about them. Uh, Cause there's lots of great content online there. What's uh, your, what's your handle, Matt? I'm uh, Matt Delmont, uh, M A T T D E L M O N T. And so you can find more information there. I hope that one of the goals of the, of my book is to try to center black Americans in their experience of world war II, but also to encourage people to ask different questions about what the war was about and what America looked like at the time. And then how that, experience of World War II, both the things that were resolved and more important, the things that weren't resolved helped to shape the world we're in today. And so I think maybe the the encouragement coming out of um, reading a book like mine is to to be curious about the past, particularly about time periods we think we know well. Um, I think there's some people would say, like, why do we possibly need another book about World War II, right? Like there are mm-hmm. bookshelves and shelves on, on, on World War II. But I think there's still stories that remain to be explored. And I hope that for listeners and for other for write, other writers, they can use my book as a, as a launching point for further investigations to understand other aspects of, of the war that, that I don't go into as much detail on in terms of the Black experience or the, the experience of other uh, communities of color during the war. Well, no one who reads Half American will think for even half a second that we don't need another book about World War II, because you have opened the door, I think, to saying we need many, many more books, as you say, telling different kinds of stories about the people and their interest in both a a global fight against fascism and a fight for true democracy and equal rights at home. Matt Delmont, this is a beautiful book. I hope that everyone gets a chance to read Half American, um, and I wish you just the most success with its publication. Thanks so much, Chris. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to the brilliant Matt Delmont for his groundbreaking work in revealing the histories of black Americans fighting the two-front war abroad and at home in Half America. You'll find a link to purchase Half American from an independent bookstore at our website, burnedbybooks.com, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. Later this week, you'll hear my episode with Lydia Millett, whose latest novel, Dinosaurs, is one of the best of the year. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>